0: Well, grab your Bibles, make your way to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 15 this morning, beginning in verse 11, and we're going to work our way through verse 32. We're going to break it up into two sections. Um, In the Gospel of Luke, the particular parable that we're looking at this morning is combined almost in a trilogy of parables. We've looked at the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. This morning, we look at a parable that's quite familiar to many people, known as the parable of the prodigal son. In each parable, the sheep, the coin, and the prodigal son demonstrate the grace and the love and the mercy of God and also reveal the joy that God has when an individual returns to him, when they're found, when they're brought back from wandering. Again, our focus this morning is with the prodigal son, and we're going to be looking at two different focuses with this parable. The first is a question, what are we seeking? The second part is going to be looking at the roads that we all can be traveling on, the roads that we all encounter in life. And so let's read it. We're going to start in verse 11. We're just going to work our way to verse 24 right now, and then we'll finish up the rest of the part. We're going to break the parable into two acts, act 1 and act 2, much like a play. And the word of the Lord says, And he said there was a man who had two sons, He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And then verse 25, when we get there here in a moment, begins, we'd introduce to the older son. The parable's pretty easy to understand at face value. When you read it, we have a father who has two sons. The father in the parable is a representation of God. The two sons are representation of two types of individuals in this world. One day the younger son comes to the father there in verse 12 and tells the father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. In other words, he's looking at his father and he says, I want what is going to be part of my estate when you die, because eventually it's going to come to me. This meant, meant to sound harsh as Jesus is telling this parable. It's been a huge insult within this society because a younger son is showing no respect to his father. He's dishonoring him. He's disobeying commandment number five, where we're called to honor our father and mother. In the context of this parable, what we need to remember several weeks ago is the people who are listening to Jesus as he tells this parable. There are two types of people listening. There's the Pharisees and the scribes, and they've just been complaining about Jesus because the other type of people that Jesus is with, that they titled as sinners, And as Jesus speaks on the action taken by the younger son, the Pharisees and the scribes, what would be known as the religious elite, we have to picture their faces begin showing disgust. Their hearts would have got to a place where they're going to condemn this younger son. Now in the son's defense of the parable, even in the context, he had a right to go to his father. It was not a common practice to do this, but it wasn't unheard of. For a son to go to his father before he would die and say, hey, give me what's coming to me. And since we know in the parable the father has an older son and a younger son, what would happen with the inheritance it would be split in thirds. The older son would receive two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger son would receive a third of it. We don't know what the property was that the younger son got. Honestly, the parable doesn't really need to deal with that. But what does matter is the action of both sons. The younger one, Packs his bag and moves to a far country. Most likely, it was a bigger city. While the younger, older son takes a back seat and comes back in Act 2, beginning in verse 25. It's now the time to follow the younger son who's living it up. He's doing what the world will provide because he's in a place where there are pigs. We know this is not a Jewish area. Jewish people do not associate with pigs. But he lives it up. He spends everything that his father has given him until it's completely wasted away. And he finds himself in a tight spot. He's got nothing left. And so he has to hire himself out. And he works for pigs. Again, we keep in the context when Jesus is telling us, when we go back to the Pharisees and scribes, This newly acquired job by the younger son would have made them cover their mouths in disgust. Pigs of the Jewish community were defined as unclean by God. Jewish people did not associate with pigs. They did not eat pigs. They did not take care of pigs. But here the younger son is so desperate. He is starving so much. He has nothing left that he sees what the pigs are being fed to eat, and it looks tempting. It actually looks good. So we can picture the Pharisees and scribes are hearing Jesus give this parable. This moment in time, they're probably getting ready to throw up in their, in their mouth. But they're also probably thinking, this disobedient son, this dishonorable son, he's getting what he deserves. Probably don't like where the parable's gone at this point as Jesus is laying it out, yet they're probably okay with what has come of this younger son. So at this point, we're told in verse 17 that, the son came to himself. What reading means is that he came to his senses. I think this is why so many people like this parable, and so many people are familiar with this parable because a lot of us can see ourselves in the younger son. We've given everything, and yet we've wasted it away. To a point in life where we come to a place where we're broken. We've got nowhere to go. We've got nothing else to give, nothing to show for what we accomplished. And so this leads the younger son to come to a plan of action in verse 18. He's talking to himself. I will rise and go to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And that's what he does in verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. And so our parable brings us back to the place where it begins, back at the father's place, his estate, his estate. We don't know how long the son has been away. We don't know how much stuff he's spent. All we know that he's now broken. He's broken physically, he's broken spiritually. He went out in the world seeking something great to only realize that all that he was seeking after, all that he was chasing, all that he was spending his money on was just fool's gold. Again, if we think about the Pharisees, they'd be disgusted. With this younger son, but at the same time, in seeing the younger son's brokenness and his repentant heart, they might—they might have been open. The idea of him coming back, his father showing this son mercy and allowing him to become the lowest of servants. But in the parable, Jesus describes how our heavenly Father responds, how He responds to the broken. How he responds to those who come before him with a repentant heart. It begins in the latter part of verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. I think the son did something that we all do when we find ourselves in a tight spot. He started making a script up in his head about what he was going to say. So he's got his script. He's ready to say what he's planned to say to his father, and he probably, like us at times, says it figured out in his head how he hopes, maybe even prays that this is going to go, how his father is going to react, re- respond to him. And we have to keep in mind the son has been working with pigs. He probably looks horrible. He probably smells horrible. But as he prepares his repentant speech, his father sees him in the distance. And instead of waiting for the son to come to him, the father runs to the son. In this parable, the father is the noble figure. And noble figures in Jesus' time did not run, but the father is so overcome for his love for his son, he goes and he grabs him, he embraces him, he kisses him, he holds him. This isn't meant to be seen like sometimes when we go see our parents or go to our parents' house and they say, oh, it was good to see you or how you doing, missed you. They give us a handshake, maybe a, a kind of hug. This is an overwhelming embrace and compassion from the father to the son. And the son begins to quote out his script. Notice the father doesn't even let him stop or, start or end it. Son wanted to say, I want to be a hired servant. I want to be one of the lowest servants in your house but the father looks at his son, before he even gets that line out, and he says, bring out the best robe. The best robe would have been a fi- the finest robe. It would have been a festive robe. And he says, put this on my son, and then to bring a ring, and to put it on his hand, and to bring him some shoes. And then the celebration begins. There's music, and there's dancing. And if the parable would have ended there, those sinners that the Pharisees classify them as, they would have been like, wow. And the Pharisees and scribes would have been like, huh? What? If it ended there, it would have been enough because it would end in celebration. And it would give us closure to the younger son that everything in the world is now good again. Everything in the world is now restored, but it doesn't because it goes on to Act 2 beginning in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant, and he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound, but he, being the older son, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look. These many years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother was dead, and is was alive. He was lost and is found. Older brother. He's been out. He's had a hard day of work. Been out in the fields of his father. And he starts to come home. And he smells something good in the air. Just think of like a steakhouse. And he hears music. And he hears dancing. And we have to keep in mind, the older brother knows that he is the only son left at home. And so he has no clue what is going on. So he asks a servant, hey, give me the rundown. What's happening in there? If you're not familiar with the Bible, throughout the Scripture, there's a lot of sibling rivalries that happen. And this older brother comes home and he begins fuming because this good-for-nothing brother has come home. And it's obvious to him his younger brother is taking advantage of, of his father. The older brother is so mad he can't even bring himself to go into the house and get near the house. But you notice what the father does? The father's actions within the parable is consistent. The father goes out to the raging brother just as he went out to the repentant younger brother. As the father pleads for the older brother to come inside, the older brother just lets it out. You know what? Let's paraphrase. (laughs) I've been slaving here. I've been doing everything you've asked me to do, everything that needed to be done, and did I complain? No. Did I run off? No. I never disobeyed you. I never dishonored you. And what do I get for it? Not even a goat. I don't get a party. But here's this son of yours, not even call him a brother, he wanted nothing to do with this family. And you willingly welcome him home. son is fuming and what does the father do? He doesn't rebuke him. He calls him son. He gives him a term of love and affection and he tries to explain to the older brother why he's doing what he's doing so he can understand. And then Jesus just leaves us there in verse 32. What happened? Did the older brother go in? What Jesus wants us to do is he wanted the group of people listening is to understand the spiritual truth behind this, to understand where we might be. And he's telling the religious elite, and he's telling these religious outcasts the same truths. You see, both groups, both sons sought the benefits of God, but not God. We see this in the younger brother and in the older brother. And it's easier to read this parable and be like the Pharisees and judge the younger brother because his actions were dishonorable. He blatantly told his father, I wish you were dead, but since you're not dead yet, give me what's coming to me. He wanted the blessings of God, but he didn't want God in his life. The older son wanted recognition. He says, hey, I'm here all the time. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing, everything that's expected of me. And you know what? I deserve to be treated better than this. For us today, we either have an older brother syndrome or a younger brother syndrome. The younger brother syndrome is wanting a Savior with no Lord. Wanting to be saved for heaven but to live like hell. Seeing Jesus as our fire insurance but not our good shepherd. The older brother syndrome follows the rules but not out of love. They are obedient, so they'll be recognized. And they are faithful, so they'll be rewarded. Both brothers want the benefits and the blessings of the Father, but not necessarily their father. Just as we can want the blessings and the benefits of God, but not necessarily God to be God over our life. Both are seeking. The younger brother is seeking freedom, and individuality, His belief is that no one can tell me what to do. No one can control me. The younger brother wants to go, and he feels everything his father represents is holding him back. We can do that too. Live life how we want, and everything that God tells us to do in his word is just holding us back. The older brother is seeking recognition, superiority, and up until his little brother returned, he had it. Both brothers were seeking something to prove. Just so we can be like the younger and we'll show that whoever they are, they're wrong. We can do whatever we want to do. It's our life. And you know what? It, it, we won't make the mistakes that they made. So we know better. Maybe you have kids and you've seen that in their life. You, Mom, dad, you don't know anything. I can live my life how I want, and I won't make the mistakes you may have made. Older brother mentality says, you know what? I'm going to do everything right. I'm going to do it by the book. I'm going to follow the rules. And you know what? When someone steps out, I'm going to call them on it. I'm going to show them how they were wrong because, you know what? I have all the answers. But notice, neither the younger brother nor the older brother the younger in his freedom. The older brother in his righteousness. You notice something about him? Neither of them were happy. Neither of them experienced a joy in life. One becomes broken. One becomes bitter. Because both were seeking the wrong thing. The younger son is broken and the, has nowhere to turn. Nothing to show for his life. And yet he still receives the blessings of the father. The older son is bitter. And he overlooks. Has, how he's already been richly blessed by the Father. So the question that we started with is, what are we seeking after? Maybe you're here and you're, you're like the younger son. You want to experience all that the world has to offer. You want to live in freedom. You have a mentality, you know what, no one can tell me what to do. I'll be honest, I've been there, personally. As part of my testimony running away from the father. But God wants us here that all this world has to offer isn't real. And no doubt the younger son went out, and he had a good time. He spent whatever his father gave him, but he found himself alone. Maybe we're like the older son. We're here. I'm at church today. I tithe regularly. I pray I read my Bible. I at least move my lips when we're supposed to be singing. I stand, I sit. I do all the things that expect of me. And maybe some of us have the older brother syndrome because we were once the younger brother. We once tried to go and run and do all the things the world would have offered, so now we're trying to autocorrect it. Now we're going to live by the rules. Now we're going to keep it tight. We're not going to mess it. We're going to flip the script, and we're going to dig ourselves out of this hole. We're going to make sure that we're doing the things that we're supposed to be doing, and then things will get better. Then things will get right. But here's the thing. Salvation does not work that way. It's a danger God wants us to hear because we can do all the right things, but it doesn't mean anything if we keep doing what we think we should do instead of allowing God to do what he's already done. It's a danger because when we do the things we should do or don't do the things we don't do, it's feeling like we're proving ourselves to God and we can be like this older son feeling that like we deserve better, we can become bitter and angry, and that anger is typically focused on him. And so what God wants us to know is fulfillment isn't in self-discovery, fulfillment in life isn't in self-righteousness, but in the all-consuming presence of the Father. What motivates us to seek after him aren't the things that we do or the things we don't do. What motivates us to seek after the Father is his love for us. The reality is God sees us all just like the younger son. He sees us all in our pig troughs. He also sees us like the older son at times. He sees us in our bitterness. And you know what? He responds the same way and he still loves us. Both boys in the parable were seeking self-interest, and God doesn't want us to seek self-interest. He wants us to seek the Savior. The second aspect of this parable is the roads that we all travel on at times in life. and We're going to come back to verse 11 through 24 as our main focus it's going to be focused on the younger son and the road he traveled. Again, he receives his portion from his father. He got what he wanted. He moved away. And when he moved away, he moved away from the presence of the Father. And the same thing happens in our life when we move away from the Father. Sin is the great separator. It separates us from the presence. And when we sin and we don't make amends to sin with the Father or with one another, we become just like the younger son and we pull away. For most of us, at least in my opinion... It's easier for us to pull away than to deal with the problem. It's easier for us to brush things off. You know, it's not that big of a deal. It's not hurting anyone instead of dealing with it. As time progresses, what happens is in our heart, guilt begins to begin. And when we begin to feel guilt, we don't like it. And since we didn't want to deal with the problem, we begin patching the thing. And we patch it with what this son was patching. He was searching. He was seeking. And he started patching things in his life with worldly things. And as time continues to grow in our life, and we're doing all this patchwork. Something we once titled is not a big deal has become a scenario that we relate more to the younger son. We've spent everything. We can't see any refreshment on the horizon. We're feeling lost. I think the Christian band Casting Crowns Hit on the head with one of their songs. It says, It is a slow fade when you give yourself away. When black and white are turned to gray and thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. See, Satan with his tactics doesn't come after us all the time with his big dang. Sometimes it's just he creeps in. He sneaks in. He slides in. It's a point that We've been brushing it off for so long, we don't even realize how big of a problem it's become. Have you ever dealt with mold in your house? If you just paint over mold, it doesn't take care of the problem, does it? Eventually, it starts to spread. Or maybe you're like me and you hate mowing the lawn and trimming things on the fences. But if you don't take care of the vines, what happens? It starts to spread. Several years ago, we had some vines growing on our back fence. Actually, it weighed it so much, it made it lean, because we didn't take care of it, and it started to spread. And this is the road that we can sometimes be on where this sun went, and that's the road of ruin. The road of ruin begins much like the sun here in this parable, much like what we've been speaking about. It begins in a place where an individual fails to depend and be led by and rely on the Father, to rely on God. It begins we're on the road, that we begin thinking that we can figure it out. You know, we can fix this. We already know what to do. It begins in a life that doesn't seek after God's advice in every detail, doesn't go to his word and allow it to lead us. We can actually buy into the lie that Satan will feed us on this road, that I can figure this out, I can fix this without God's guidance and without God's truth. And so what we do on this road is we begin making decisions that's best for who? us what makes us feel good what sounds good to us or maybe what doesn't sound that bad and we end up in wrong places so what happens the younger son will eventually happen to us on the road to ruin is that we lose sight of god i don't know if you've ever been lost physically um some I know men don't like to admit that we get lost at times, um, maybe lost in the woods at times. <laughs> kind of hard to get lost when you travel these days because you've got the phones and they got the maps and things like that. Um, but I can remember one time we were coming back from the beach and Jamie and I were, uh, we were coming back from Alabama. We made it into Mississippi and I took a wrong turn. I thought, well, I know what I'm doing. And somehow we ended up back in Alabama. <laughs> and I looked at her and said, well, this isn't right. So we had to turn around and we had to go find the road, and I started using my phone again. Um, Several years ago, a long time ago, I was in youth ministry, and uh, we were in Chicago, Illinois. We had two 15-passenger vans full of teenagers and and some chaperones, and we were at a conference up there in Chicago. Well, Friday night, the conference ended for the day, and we had to be back in the morning, and uh, we'd get out. It's about 11 o'clock at night. And at that point in time, the best phone you could get was a BlackBerry. I loved my BlackBerry, but it didn't have maps on it. And so, to date myself, you printed out the maps, right? You remember doing that, or you wrote it out the instructions? And so I had a printout, but it was dark, and it was in a file, and I was driving to Chicago, so I didn't want to get it. So i like, I'm pretty sure, you know, I got a photo memory. I, I can figure out where we're going, where we're going to be staying for the night at the hotel. So we start driving. Luckily, the teenagers are all in their world. You know, they're all doing their own thing, talking or trying to fall asleep or whatnot. And so uh, they, they were unaware that I was lost. And what could possibly go wrong on a Friday night at 11 p.m. in Chicago when you get lost? Well, one pipes up. Mike, do you know where we are? My heart knew the answer. <laughs> no. But I did not feel at that point in time, as I'm navigating 30 people through Chicago, Illinois, that that should be the answer I would give. And so I said, Of course, I know where we are. We're on the road, and all roads lead somewhere. And by the way, we're in Chicago. That seemed to calm him. But in my heart, I was restless. I was nervous. I didn't want to make the wrong turn because I knew there were some neighborhoods that would not be good for us to drive into in Chicago, Illinois. I was uneasy. You know, as Christians, when we lose sight of God, it makes our hearts uneasy and nervous. But we also have to understand when we lose sight of God, when we wander away, that there are people watching, and they're following our example, and if we're leading them, guess who they're going to follow? Us. They're going to follow our example. They're going to follow what we say and what we do. So as individuals, we lose sight of God because we have been following his word in our life. Sometimes it's hard to figure out how to get back on the right track. To get back to those places where, you know, I feel the presence of God. I hear his voice speaking to my heart. I believe there's a lot of God's children who are in that spot. They just don't feel as close to God as they once did. I understand in life there are dry moments. We have to understand in life there are going to be valleys that we're going to have to go through. But sometimes we find ourselves in those locations simply because we're like this younger son and we've moved away from the Father's presence. My mom would tell me that if you feel far from God, guess who moved? The road to ruin continues because when we're on this road, we tend to get frustrated. Things aren't going the way we think they should go. A lot of times we get frustrated at God. We get frustrated at the people we love. And you may not be that person right now, but maybe God has put people in your life you're like, wow, that, that's where they are. And on this road, there can become times we get tempted that we're not going to hold God dear anymore. We become just like the younger son. He didn't hold anything that his father owned, anything his father did for him is sacred. And he squandered it all away recklessly. And we can do that too when we lose the joy of our salvation, the calling that God has placed on our life, the ultimate goal that God has for us. And that's not the most important thing in his purpose for us. We can begin throwing things away and seeking after other things that will never fulfill us. Maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling Ruined. Or maybe you're here this morning, and I've just described someone in your life, and you can see that they're on this road, and this is where this road leads, it leads to the road of destruction. When're going down this road, we feel burdens. So we've got this sin, and the thing is is that sin's not something for us to carry. We lay it at the foot of the cross. The good news is, the road of ruin intersects with another road, and that's the road of repentance. And this is good news because without repentance, one can't be saved or forgiven. The younger son in the parable, he ends up broken. He's broken physically. He's broken spiritually. And the road of ruin leads away from God. It leads us to become isolated. It leads us to become alone. But at times in life, the road to ruin intersects with the road of repentance. And those times when we cry out for God, why? Or we fall down on our knees, broken before God. And we tell him, you know what, I was wrong." These moments are important in life because they help us change directions. And they're important in life because it means that our heart and the Holy Spirit is speaking to us saying, this is not the way it should be. This is not the direction you should be going. We have to understand, God is not insulted with your anger. And God is not insulted with your questions. He's a big God. He can handle it. But what does insult God is when we ask the questions but we don't seek the answers. Or when we cry out in anger and we don't seek the remedy. It takes a very weak individual to throw a temper tantrum. Just go to Walmart, hang out in the toy toy aisle for a while and you'll see it. It takes a very weak individual to throw a temper tantrum. And the Bible says we are to grow up in the faith. And so we seek after the truth in the matter in which our heart is speaking to us. Sometimes God leads us through the valleys, but after that, sometimes we put ourselves there. The road of ruin intersects with the road of repentance when one comes to their senses, as his young son did, and they see the results of the actions. And only then will someone truly repent because they see their sinful decisions that they've done in their life, the things that they've done to people they love, the things they've done to God. And they repent of those, and the reason we can repent of those is because God sent His Son to this earth to pay the ultimate price for all sins. So we have to pray for ourselves. We have to pray for people around us. Paul writes that the knowledge of the law brings us to the knowledge of sin, which is to lead us to repentance. And some people may never come to this realization because they firmly bought into the lie that the road to ruin is where they have to stay or it's not that big of a deal and the Bible's not relevant to them. The younger son realized that all he hungered for in this world and all the things he thought would satisfy him couldn't. The only fulfillment and the only satisfaction he could find was to be back in the presence of the Father. So this is where we have to be panting for God, thirsting for the living water, hungering for the bread of life, pressing on down the straight and narrow. Because here's the thing, once we get to that road of repentance, the mercy and the grace of God doesn't leave us there very long. Because that leads to the road of restoration. The parable of the Father, he gives his son the best robe. Again, this was a festive robe. It would be deemed as one of the finest robes father sees his son who's covered in pig filth and he robes him with the finest robe just as god covers our filth by the blood of jesus christ and his perfect righteousness the ring the father gives his son was a mark of favor and affection just as when we're on the road of repentance in our life god brings us the road of restoration he puts the Holy Spirit inside of us. He calls us his children and reminds us that we're heirs to his kingdom. And if we're already a child of his and we hit that road of repentance, what he does is he restores our soul. He refreshes us. The father gave his son shoes. Obviously, he didn't have shoes. let to keep in mind, the son wanted to come back and be a servant. Most servants in this day and age did not have shoes. But the father gave him shoes. And the whole thing about giving the robe and the ring and the shoes is to remind us that there's nothing we can do to earn God's love. It is freely given to us. And so our motivation to do anything is based upon the love the Father has for us. The Father in the parable didn't let the Son get to the point of trying to get to the second line of His script. And it's to remind us that we don't have to script it out before God. He loves us. He welcomes us in. He welcomes us home. He braces us. And so when the Father gives him shoes, the shoes are the sign of a complete restoration of the Son. The father in prayer restores his Son to his rightful place as a Son, just as God restores us to a right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. The question this morning, what road are we on today? Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Maybe you're here today and God has opened your eyes. You've been going the wrong way. You're not on the road that you should be on. You're actually moving further. And further away from the presence of the Father. When God promises in his word that he will never leave us or forsake us. And maybe God has revealed to your heart today that you moved away from his presence. You've moved away from his peace. God is also calling us all to check what road are we on. Are we on the road of repentance, the road of ruin? He wants to bring us to the road of restoration. Restoration. He wants to change our hearts and our life and give us the joy that surpasses all understanding and that peace that surpasses all understanding. But maybe you're here today and you need to be restored to a relationship with God because you've yet to begin that. And God has made it incredibly easy and been incredibly important. It begins by admitting to God as his son came to understanding, God, I am a sinner. I fall short of your perfection. I fall short of your holiness. I do things I'm not proud of. And then it's believing that, God, I understand that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to live a perfect life that I could not. And he died on the cross for my sins. He took my punishment. And they placed him in the tomb, but he rose three days later to show that he has the power over death and the authority to forgive sins and grant eternal life. And if you're here this morning and you you know that's what you need to do, you believe that in your heart, the Bible says you need to confess it with your mouth, make it publicly known, and then the Bible says you will be saved, forgiven, and restored. If that's you this morning, Nick's going to come up and lead us in a song, a song of invitation. I'm just going to ask you to come down the aisle and say, Pastor Mike, I, I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. We'll pray together and we'll celebrate, just as Jesus says, celebration erupted when the son returned but maybe you know you're on a road you shouldn't be on you may just need to come and kneel before the father and repent of that and find his restoration let's pray together father thank you for this day thank you for loving us and taking care of us thank you for your mercy and your grace and your kindness lord thank you that when you see us coming you come to us you came to save us through your son and father i pray if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation. Thank you, Lord, that you see us in our brokenness, you see us in our filth, and yet you still love us and have compassion on us. We ask you alone to be glorified in this time, and praise in the name of Jesus, Amen.